1: Following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 25th, 2022. On this week's show, Tim Layden will join us to talk about the record-breaking sprinters and a record-jumping pole vaulter at the World Track and Field Championships. Then Abe Reisman will be here to discuss Vince McMahon's retirement as WWE Chairman and CEO, amid reports that the wrestling impresario paid millions in settlements to women who accused him of sexual misconduct and infidelity. And finally, Sarah Larson will be here for a conversation about her New Yorker feature on Pickleball. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsas and Joel Anderson are both out this week, but don't fear. Back with us is the New Yorker staff writer and theater critic Vincent Cunningham. And good news to you back here. I only had to deal six first round picks and I got
2: to keep (laughs) R.J. Barrett. It was a haul, but here I am. Ready to take us into the future?
1: Yeah, it was a it was a bidding war. Um, I was willing to give up almost anything to
2: get you back on the show, <laughs> except for RJ Barrett. It means sacrosanct. What can I say?
1: On Sunday night, American Sydney McLaughlin closed the track portion of the World Track and Field Championships by leading the U.S. to a resounding victory in the women's four by four hundred meter relay. McLaughlin earlier in the week smashed the world record. In the 400-meter hurdles, she anchored a team that won Team USA's 33rd medal, the most ever for a nation in a single world championships. And then a moment later, a man who's beloved from Baton Rouge to Stockholm, Armand Mondo de Plantis, finished up the field portion by pole vaulting over a bar 20 feet, four and a half inches off the ground, a new world record for the Louisiana and Swede. Joining us now is Tim Layden, who you might know as a longtime Sports Illustrated writer and who now contributes essays and TV pieces for NBC Sports. Welcome back to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks guys. Great to have you. And what I just described was a microcosm of the last 10 days in eugene oregon wasn't it record-setting performances many of which came from americans and star making turns from young charismatic athletes like mclaughlin like mondo and like the 200 meter gold medalist Noel Noel lyle's athletes who are reshaping their sports as we watch
0: it's tremendous meat um i wish it had been a little better attended but that's something that track and field fans struggle with every year every championships but uh Really was a remarkable meet, Lyles, and, and in some ways, Lyles, the guy who not only ran a fast time, but he, you know, got rid of some demons that he's dealt with in the past, hopefully. Um, and it was just, and McLaughlin, um, as you described, is really a transcendent athlete. She and uh, the sprint hurdless Toby Amasan of Nigeria uh, both just shattered world records in the two women's hurdle events in a way that almost broke the event, it broke the 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 larger world of women's hurdling, taking world records down to an area where they were not supposed to get and uh, really just was a tremendous meet.
2: I wondered about that because Toby Amazon actually beat the 100 meter hurdle record in a semifinal um it, that looked like it was being sort of not easily run not like sort of nonchalantly run but there was no like i had no idea that a world record was on the line until she turned around and looked at the clock in disbelief which made me want to see the clock what is it like when a, when a meet goes like that when there are lots of world records run is there like i know it can't be it's not the wind because we take this into account what is it is it like the, is the sun? What is the like? <laughs> yeah. What are the conditions that make for a fast meet like that? I've I've always wondered. It's
0: interesting. Amusan's uh, semi-final world record, which she again broke in the final a second time. Yeah, the she there were so many fast times in those semifinals that Michael Johnson, the great USA uh, 200, 400 meter runner, world former world record holder in, in both events, said that he those times are wrong. He just flat out he flat out <laughs> tweeted that something is wrong, something was wrong with the automatic timing system in in those semifinals, but obviously when Amazon came back and went twelve o seven in the final, then it's unlikely that there was something wrong and and I don't know we know the track is fast every every subsequent major event track in track and field, the company that makes those things tweaks them and alters their technology, and each subsequent track is anecdotally a little faster. There's not enough data Mm. on the Hayward field track to know exactly how fast it is specifically. But the athletes all said it's fast. So you can take a fast track. You take... Uh, Amosan had a a 0.9 meters per second um, wind in the semifinal, and and I don't know what the wind was in the final, but it was following also. Um, and And the fact that she's peaked for the race of her life, the fact that she's running against two former world record holders in the race, and you just pile data on top of data, circumstances on top of circumstances, and we see this in Olympics and world championships fairly regularly is that people produce great performances, especially in sprints where there are no tactics. Um, It's just all out from the gun, and you just get fast times, although both McLaughlin and Amasan, their times were outside the curve of what we might have expected. Not Mondo. We expect him to break records essentially every time he competes. Different category.
1: Let's get back to McLaughlin, and let's hear how Lee Diffie of NBC called her uh closing stretch of the 400 meter hurdles
3: please watch the clock the world record is 51 41 sydney mclaughlin the 22 year old american there is no stopping her 50.6 it's a world record sydney mclaughlin has just smashed her own record
1: so there's some way, Tim, in which this was expected, this not being the time, but this being a world record, because it seems like every time that McLaughlin has um, taken the track at a major event over the last stretch of time that she's broken her own mark. Um, mm-hmm. And she, we first saw her as a high schooler, as a 17-year-old um, who seemed extremely motivated by the fact that she got bounced in the semifinals um, in that Olympics and has come back. Um, at a level that we've never seen before. What is it about her from a technical standpoint or from any other standpoint that's allowed her to, as you said, kind of break the sport?
0: Yeah, in terms of what we expected, I mean, yeah, this is her fourth straight, you know, U.S. Trials, Olympics, U.S. Championships, World Championships. It's four major championship events where she's broken the world record. I mean, she said on the track that Bobby, meaning Bobby Kersey, her coach, and I thought we might even go faster, which was stunning to hear because everyone who wasn't Sydney McLaughlin or Bobby Kersey watched that race and had uh, were thinking maybe she would approach 51 flat and to get all the way down to 50.68 is pretty stunning. I'm not a 400 meter hurdler, nor do I coach any. But the explanation I've been given is that she is obviously technically nearly perfect um, in terms of obviously to run fifty point six eight, which would have finished seventh in the open four hundred meter hurdles without a, a race that's run without ten hurdles, um, obviously to do that she is losing very little speed or or um, efficiency by jumping over hurdles over the course of running once around the track. Um, that's, the, that's the goal. Edwin Moses obviously was very good at that. Karsten Warholm and Rye Benjamin, um, they're all very good at this. Allison Dos Santos, who won the men's 400 in Eugene, that's something they all aspire to. McLaughlin has obviously taken it to a level that, again, we, she has evolved the event faster than it was supposed to evolve. Um, it's to the extent which now she's talking about not doing it anymore, which would be remarkable, mm. but, um, I, perhaps she's ready to turn the page, but, um, we're just getting to an area where it's almost like the event, and this is said with no disrespect, it's almost become too easy for her. Um, and you know, maybe, you know, women's 400 meter hurdles in women's hundred meter hurdles are shorter than men's hurdles in similar races. And maybe with the accelerated um, evolution of women's athletics that we're seeing a point where these hurdles are almost too easy for an athlete that is as skilled and fast as Sidney McLaughlin. And, of course, then she went 47-9 split in the 4x400 relay, which is extremely fast and um, is a harbinger of what we might see in the future for her.
2: It's interesting that you say this about the... Um the, the relative difficulties of women's sport and things like this. Because one, one of the other things I heard that Bobby Kersey has done with Sydney McLaughlin is advise her to quote, and this is just what has been said, run like a man in that she's taken a step off of her steps between the hurdles right. and the, like her technique is now exactly mimicking what men's hurdlers do where she, i think it was she's down to 14 steps instead of 15 steps between hurdles yeah and you know as title nine has come you know it, it's you know it's gained new relevance when you talk about trans athletes and sports and all these things it's interesting to, to hear that in some ways the techniques that once were different have started to be the same across men's and women's sports
0: Sure. And in the 100-meter hurdles for Amosan, it's three steps between hurdles, just like men, but the hurdles are a little shorter because the athletes are a little shorter. Um, Whether women have exceeded that uh, seems to be an ongoing thing. Um, and, And McLaughlin is so, she's been a perfect hurdler since she was 14 or 15 years old. And she's one of those prodigies who's just ascended the scale without losing any of that excellence, which only happens a less than 100% of the time. Um, the interesting thing with her is going to be seeing, the assumption is she'll run the 400 now, either next year at the World Championships in Budapest and Paris at the 2024 Olympics, some of us would like to see her continue to run the hurdles along with the 400 and try to double if the schedule can be configured to make that possible. Um, But there isn't, it's interesting to see some, when I suggested that she double or switch to the 400 on social media, some people that are real track nerds, um, and there are many of them and they really know what they're talking about, suggested that she won't be dominant in the 400 because Such a large percentage of her excellence is her technical proficiency. Um, we don't know because you can't divide, you can't separate out those two qualities and determine which is uh, the greater, um, has the greater impact on her, on her times. Um, 47.9 last night is, as far as we know, the second fastest split ever by an American. Allison Felix ran forty-seven seventy-one. I think, in 2009 or 2011 uh, on a relay split. So she's right in that range now. Um, so she's going to be fast at 400, whether she can break the world record, which is 47-6 by Marita Cook of East Germany back in the days. Um, That's an open question that everybody would love to see answered, but I'd love to see her maybe just for one world championships try both. Where they Mm -hmm. her time, her times may suffer if she does that because she'll be running a lot of rounds and a lot of finals, and uh, it, it, it will wear her out to some degree. But, um, you know, I'm of an idea that these Olympic sports are so starved for oxygen in the larger sports world that the athletes we've seen really get. Uh, breakthrough attention, uh, crossover attention, um, are the ones that that stay active for the whole week. Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, Simone Biles, even Schifrin, uh, who failed but um was active all week. Um, I'd love to see McLaughlin mm-hmm. do that once, where she's running, heat, semifinal, heat, semifinal relay over the course of eight or nine days, where she's sort of always, um, she's a mini series, um. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, then, and and then go break the 400-meter world record after that. But <laughs> it's up to her. She's she's not listening to me.
1: So in some ways, the men's 200-meter final was more surprising because we knew, I think, or highly suspected that Sidney McLaughlin was going to win um, the 400-meter hurdles. Whereas with uh, the 200 meters, you have this rivalry between Noah Lyles and Arian Knighton, where Knighton, as still a high schooler had run a 1949, which is just a ridiculous time. And I'm throughout right. the world championships, we are hearing Otto Bold and other announcers just noting how much faster that was than Usain Bolt at the same age. Whereas, as you said, kind of at the top of our segment, Tim, Noah Lyles, who's just a thrilling and promising athlete, had had the sort of dark passage and his career really struggled with the pandemic talked about, um, his battles with mental health had finished, had gotten a bronze at the Olympics, which was a disappointment for him. Um, and so this was gonna be, and then obviously at the U.S. Championships, he ran Knighton down and pointed at him at the end, which is just a, a kind of a thrilling preview of what we thought was gonna be a rematch in the final. And then Lyles just blew Knighton away. A guy a guy in Knighton who'd gotten so much more press than Noah Lyles had, had gotten. Um, was that surprising to you? And what did you see in that final?
0: The fact that Lyles wound up winning both the U.S. championships and the world championships was not surprising. Uh, again, the, there's a scoreboard in a race, so you don't know who's going to win, but I would have expected, ultimately, Lyles to win. Part of that is about Lyles and part of it's about Knighton. Um, Knighton is obviously a transcendent talent or appears to be at a very young age. Um, he ran 1949. You know, the, the history of track and field is, f- especially the recent history, sort of the most recent generation, is full of 200-meter runners who ran very fast once. I don't know why the event lends itself to that. Um, but when Knighton ran fort 1949, I had a conversation with Otto and some other people in the track world, and I said, okay, you know, now he's he has to back that up a couple times now, um, but he's only eighteen, so you don't want to lay that across his shoulders. He has a long time to run, um, to get stronger, to get faster, to get more coaching. There's his whole career is ahead of him. But my gut feeling was it was going to be hard for him to produce another race like that this year, for instance.
1: I mean, just for con- so people understand, like he'll be as old as Noah Lyles is now in twenty twenty nine. Right.
0: Yeah. he's And Lyles in 2016 nearly made the Olympic team in the 200 meters when he was the age that Knighton is now. So uh, he didn't make it. Um, he came close, uh, but, but he had also not run 1949 at that point. So uh, Knighton has been m- more of a prodigy than Lyles or anybody really, in, in, in even Bolt. I thought Knighton would, I thought he had a significant task to run that fast again and to beat grown men who have been doing this. Um, not that, that, that is not a negative comment on night and it's just not easy. And people in track tend to look at the time and say, okay, well, he's going to go faster or just do this again. And it just isn't the, the, the curve doesn't go straight up, um, with, with sprinters, especially because it's a, a quirky, funky activity that's, hard to, it's hard to repeat. You have nerves, you have technique, you know, and as the great spinner Mike Marsh once said to me, you're trying to do something very intense while relaxing. It, it's just, you know, it's an interesting thing. Lyle's, yes, the mental health, the pandemic, and he's shown himself to be a, an engaging, excitable, um, really dynamic personality who has struggled with the big stage at times, even before the pandemic and before the Olympics. Um, he's thrown in some some poor races on big stages. Um, And, and you, you, with knowing his talent, knowing his personality, you just have to really want for him to overcome that. And I think the combination of being a little bit older, having been through things, having talked about it all publicly and having his whole support system in that stadium with him in Eugene. Um, He's a very, very um, passionate family guy. You know, he just, he missed not having his brother with him in, in, in Tokyo, I just thought all those things sort of coalesced to to make this a really good stage for him um to run well. All that said, I would not have guessed 1931. Um, again, much like McLaughlin, much like um Asuma. I I just that's like a 10th and a half faster than I thought he would run in the 1940s, maybe 1938-39s, but to to run faster than Michael Johnson's American record which at the time in 1996 was every bit as jaw-dropping as almost as Bob Beeman or Mike Powell or Sidney McLaughlin. It was just a moment that was completely stunning. Not still 26 years ago, that's a lot of passage of time, but that record has stood and no one's really been close to it in the U.S. Uh, so th- that's a huge drop for, for Lyles and you have to be tremendously happy for the guy because Whereas McLaughlin is somewhat of an understated personality, very humble, very um, respectful of of her own performances, Lyles wants to be Bolt, and I think that's good for track. And if you're going to be Bolt, you got to run like Bolt, and Lyle Lyles has come very close to that. Um, So, you know, I think that's super exciting for the sport, and you know, also now between Lyles and. Um, Sharika Jackson of Jamaica in the two, women's 200 meters, you have two very long-standing world records that suddenly look like they might be approachable, which is also exciting because track and field loves world records and they don't happen as often as in some other sports.
2: Several times you've talked about, you know, it, whether it's McLaughlin and her her sort of meet schedule or Noel Owls personality, you've sort of alluded to just track as um, an institution in need of Constant invigoration just because we don't, it's not on our TVs as much. It's, it's, there's less of a natural sort of, uh, you know, state by state fanhood. Whatever the, 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 the obstacles are to its sort of lasting popularity in the States, they're, I guess, they're many. But where would you say track is in terms of its prospect as a sort of ongoing global interest? I, I, I came away from this feeling very optimistic because there were so many great personalities from the United States and elsewhere. I continue to be, my wife is Jamaican, so I am like, you know, duty-bound to, to to love these women sprinters who continue to go from glory to glory. Uh, Shelley Ann, Fraser Price, all these great... So, I mean, it seems like just as a prospect track, there are great personalities and that we should be hearing more and more about it. But what what is your sense of where we are with it all?
0: I, I don't think we're in a terribly different place than tracks been for a long time. I mean, once we got mm-hmm. past the era when... When things like track um, or pick other sports, you you know the list: track, boxing, horse racing. There, there's this list that gets repeated of sports that were once immensely popular and now are less popular. Track is still really popular among high school runners. It's the most. Participated in sport um, in the country among high school athletes. They most of them don't become. Most of them grow up to become NFL fans, um, and that as do as does almost everyone else in America. Um, And track, I think, has a passionate base audience. And my message to track people has always been: hang on to that base audience. They're really passionate. They really love your sport. I I don't know what the TV ratings were yet for the last week. I don't know what the 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 stadium. In person audience was a little bit on the disappointing side. Eugene's hard to get to. One side of the stadium is very sunny and hot, but they're they're you know the, the stadium was never full that that they've mm. been able to document, and there
1: were several. They did keep telling us as a TV audience how amazing the crowd was. By the way,
0: yeah, the the crowd was very passionate and noisy. But the fact is they got one hundred forty six thousand people over ten nights, and there were hmm. three nights where they were in the ten thousand eleven thousand range, which is essentially half full yeah. Um, yeah but it's a it's a small intimate stadium, so one side was always full. you know i, I don't want to beat up on track for this. Eugene is hard to get to. the tickets were expensive um, I, you know there's, I'm sure there's another counter argument here um that I'd rather think about all those great personalities and hope that people just sort of, I don't expect them all to become household names. Um, I I just don't, I think we're past that era for the time being where the NFL, college football, then you drop down to NBA, then further to MLB, and then almost everything else is a niche sport to to me, and I cover a lot of them. So it's all those people have the same uh, frustrations that they're not you know, that their best athletes aren't Aaron Rodgers. Um, right. But I, I just, I think track had, these are great personalities. They are great athletes and they just need to be uh, in in your, in front of you more often, but there isn't really a great system to make that happen, except that there is a world championships next summer um, and a U.S. championships to pick the team for that. And then the year after that, there is an Olympics. So you're going to get th- three straight years um, or four straight years with either world championships or an Olympics. And I I think that has a chance to make these people at least known, if not famous.
2: I think Joe Biden needs to to launch a a wide-scale initiative to get Mondo to jump for the United States, for crying out loud. (laughs) We'll work on him.
1: Uh, Tim Layden, you can find his stuff on NBC Sports. Tim, thank you so much.
0: Okay, thanks, guys.
1: I'm next... Vince McMahon retires as CEO of WWE amid allegations of hush money payments. terms apply. On Friday, Vince McMahon announced in a news release that he was retiring as CEO and chairman of World Wrestling Entertainment, the company he took over from his father all the way back in 1982. The 76-year-old McMahon has recently been the subject of a series of stories in the Wall Street Journal, which reported that he's paid more than $12 million in hush money to four women to suppress allegations of sexual misconduct and infidelity. WWE has said that it's investigating those allegations, and McMahon, as of now, remains the company's majority stakeholder, while his daughter Stephanie is taking over as chairwoman and co-CEO. Joining us now is Abe Reisman. She's the author of a biography of Vince McMahon called Ringmaster. It's set to be published in March 2023. Abe, thanks so much for being here.
3: Thank you for so much for having me.
1: So, in addition to that upcoming biography, you recently wrote a piece for New York Magazine It's about a 1992 rape allegation against McMahon by a woman named Rita Chatterton. She was the WWE's first female referee. That story was pretty much totally ignored 30 years ago when she first made the allegation. So what would we have known about Vince McMahon back then if that story had gotten the kind of traction that this Wall Street Journal reporting has gotten?
3: Well, it's interesting. In 1992, there was a flurry of activity in the media about Vince McMahon, um, But none of it really stuck. There were accusations that he had looked the other way, while child molestation had been happening uh, at what was then known as the World Wrestling Federation. There were, as you say, Rita Chatterton's initial allegations. There were a lot of uh, allegations of steroid abuse. And yet he beat them all. So. It's interesting, at the time, it's not so much that this stuff was hidden so much as people didn't want to pay attention to it. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that wrestling is something that isn't really taken seriously in the United States. And so, because the product isn't taken seriously, the people who make the product and the industry behind the product are often just completely ignored. So, you know, if we'd been paying more attention back then, I think there may have been more skeletons that came out of the closet even back then. But the fact is the media dropped the stories pretty quickly and the wrestling world kind of moved on. Uh, Now it looks like there may, again, emphasis on may, be actual consequences for some of these allegations against Vince.
2: This whole issue, you know, I I watched wrestling quite a bunch, as a kid especially, Um, it, it makes me think a little bit of Hugh Hefner, who in some ways, uh, the signs were all there, right? The, the product was an advertisement for the, for the, the, the sins of its sort of chief architect, right? Like, if you look at wrestling and the way it puts forward female referees, female wrestlers, right? Like, it's kind of, a lot of it is kind of all there, the, the sort of differentials, these stereotypes, things, things like that. I'm not saying that we should have all known, I guess, in some facile way, but I do wonder whether now, with this resurgence of interest in Vince McMahon and his wrongdoing, whether there's a sense in the community that this is something that we could have looked at closer much longer ago.
3: Well, the wrestling world forgets its history readily and often. And it's been fascinating to watch the difference between... You know, mainstream media coverage of Vince's retirement and coverage in the wrestling blogs and sort of wrestling news ecosystem. Because in the wrestling blogosphere, if to use a, a, an outdated term perhaps, you have a lot of stories that are like, here are some of the greatest moments of Vince's tenure, or, you know, the wrestling world says, bids a fond farewell to Vince McMahon. You know, you have. This level of deference that continues to exist even now. Um, whereas in mainstream coverage, you have, you know, headlines like Vince McMahon retires amidst sexual misconduct allegations, et cetera. And I, I, it makes you <laughs> wonder just how much the wrestling world has learned, um, from these many years of accusations because so far, the wrestling media world and the wrestling fandom world, although there have been plenty of people who have denounced Vince, um, has not been as clear cut in its, um, response to these allegations, uh, in the way that, say, sort of mainstream followers of this story, uh, have reacted. You know, the, the more mainstream response is to just, be highly suspicious as opposed to what a lot of diehards for the world, for WWE uh, feel, which is a real sense of loyalty to Vince and investment in Vince's product. So it's hard to generalize, but um, one does wonder how much has been learned. Um, and just one more thing on that. It also may be that the wrestling world has learned a lot, which is that most accusations just roll off of Vince's back. So there, there is also a tendency to go well. This is just Vince, even if this looks like a Titanic event, um, it, he he's going to survive it, whatever survival looks like.
1: Before you get too much deeper, I, I should probably run through the journals reporting just quickly. There's um, there was a seven and a half million dollar settlement with a former wrestler who alleged that McMahon coerced her. Into oral sex and then demoted her and declined to renew her contract. There um, is a, another settlement around a million dollars to a woman who alleged that um, Vince sexually harassed her. A couple more settlements from women who he allegedly had affairs with and um, were paid to keep those quiet. And Abe, you, um, you know, sometimes you look at the bylines of stories, sometimes you don't. Um, but the lead reporter, one of the lead reporters. On these stories, Joe Palazzolo, um, was part of a team that won a Pulitzer for coverage of Donald Trump's secret payments to women. And to use Vincent's word of facile, I don't want to make a facile comparison between <laughs> Vince McMahon and Donald Trump, but maybe it's not actually that facile.
3: Well, the, on a very material level, Vince, um, and Donald Trump are very close. Um, you know, notoriously, Trump doesn't have many close friends. Um, that's not really how he builds relationships, but he's pretty close to that with, with Vince McMahon. I mean, I, I spoke with people who worked on, you know, Republican operatives, including people who worked on Trump's campaign. And the word I would get is, you know, as one, one campaign operative put it to me, Vince was one of the only two, the two people in the world that Trump would take phone calls from in private. Um, you had Mark Burnett, the producer of The Apprentice, and Vince. Everybody else, Trump liked to showboat and put people on speakerphone and have, you know, his entourage here. But he has a very direct relationship and a uh, long-standing relationship with Vince. So that goes back to the 80s and includes in fact, in a way, it goes back to the 40s and 50s because Trump grew up watching Vince's father and grandfather's brand of wrestling, um watching McMahon family wrestling in New York. But then in the 80s, Trump and Vince developed this relationship where Trump sponsors, you know, quote unquote, sponsors two WrestleManias, of course, as is true with everything Trump. It's a little more complicated than that. But he was the public face of hospitality for these two WrestleManias, WrestleMania being the sort of Super Bowl of wrestling, for lack of a better term, for WWE. And then you have Trump appearing in a future WrestleMania in, in 2007, um, as a participant. He, he didn't really do a whole lot of wrestling, but he was part of this battle of the billionaires between Vince and Trump. But it was all, you know, what they refer to in wrestling as kayfabe. It was, it was an illusion. They were not actually at odds. And in fact, I would guess that Trump has learned a tremendous amount from watching Vince's product and from participating in Vince's product because you do see those comparison points. You see um, the ways that they they weave together reality and fantasy, sometimes really audacious fantasy, and let people sort of – Enjoy the spectacle, not necessarily knowing what's real and what's fake, but either not caring and just wanting to experience it or caring so much that they start spending all their time trying to dissect, well, this is real, this is fake, this is real, this is fake in kind of a QAnon mode, you know, that 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 there's a lot of parallels to ways that you can consume professional wrestling in that same way. And, you know, then there are, of course, the overlaps in terms of the ways that Trump and Vince have interacted with women. Um, and, you know, you pointed out that stuff already, and there, there is that overlap in the, the, the reporting and the actual people doing the reporting. Um, but yeah, I would not say it's a facile comparison. I think the two of them have a lot in common. And indeed, have probably learned a lot from each other. And I should say, Linda, Linda McMahon, Vince's uh, wife, was in Trump's cabinet. She was the director of Small Business Administration, so their their ties run deep and long.
2: Speaking as you were earlier of professional arrest, like having or having not learned anything from Vince's transgressions, do you have a sense of now, like sort of within WWE, what the sort of state of? that organization is, how I know that they, first of all, have been in the middle of a pitched battle as they often are with like a sort of upstart competitor, AEW being the one now. And so does, how does this play into their sort of the feelings inside of their organization? Are they, is it a a chastened? Is it defiant? What is, what's the, what's the feeling? Do you know?
3: From what I can surmise, people don't really have a firm sense of what exactly is going on. Vince's retirement came down you know, that announcement came down on Friday and came as a shock to the vast majority of people who work at WWE. At least that's, you know, from what I can surmise. And I don't know that there is a clear sense of what the future for this company is without, without Vince at the creative helm, without him as CEO and chairman there's this sense of, well, is WWE going to sell? Is it going to go, you know, is some media giant going to buy this already giant media company? That could happen, and that, that level of uncertainty is always something that employees of a company don't want to have to deal with. You know, are we going to have to, are there going to be redundancies? Are people going to get fired, et cetera? There's so much that's up in the air, and I think... That's true at very high levels. You know, you have people who are pretty senior at the company who don't exactly know where things are headed right now. It's, it's kind of up for grabs. And as I said, we don't really know exactly how much, uh, power Vince has given up at this point. You know, as, as was pointed out earlier, he still is the largest individual shareholder of this publicly owned company and has control over an estimated about 80 percent of the the votes among shareholders. So he's still very much somebody who you can argue is in charge. And, you know, that, again, leads to confusion for people within WWE. You know, who's who's really running this show? Uh, I mean, the the co-CEO now is his daughter. And the new head of creative, reportedly, is um, his son-in-law, Paul Levesque, the, the wrestler Triple H. So I, I, the sense I get is people don't really know what the future looks like. And that's that's troubling for everybody.
1: And sort of similar to both Hefner and Trump, there was a conscious decision made by Vince. Not at the very beginning, but sort of like in the, in the nineties, right? To become this character, this personification of the brand, Mr. McMahon, who you may know, even if you don't watch wrestling from Twitter reaction gifs of him, like storming into the, the <laughs> ring and making kind of bug eyed expressions. Um, and so I, I thought of that, Abe, when I saw in the journal reporting that, um, I'm trying to find the exact, line here, but WWE said in regulatory filings that losing Mr. McMahon, and it's funny that that's like Mr. McMahon is his character, but also like the Journal's house style to call him Mr. McMahon in a <laughs> respectful way. Anyway, that losing Mr. McMahon would put its entire business at risk. That sort of seems like something that Vince McMahon would want us to uh, to think or a line that he would want um, us to internalize. But, you know, how true do you think that is?
3: I, I do think... Vince had made himself so, and I don't have to think this, I know, had made himself so integral to the way the product was made. Um, for the most part, you know, there were little exceptions where there were people who had little fiefdoms that they could have some limited amount of control over. For the most part, Vince was a micromanager. I mean, I've interviewed people who talk about how, you know, as of relatively recently, he would have to sign off on literally everything you know you'd have to creatively you know there would be some line in a in a script for a a monologue that you know the wrestler or whoever was producing the segment might want to change and they would have to get vince on the phone if he wasn't there to get vince to approve changing the one sentence you know that's that's the level of control he exerted and so without him it Again, like I said, it's confusion. It's what, what does this company look like if Vince is not micromanaging it? Does it thrive in a way it hasn't before? Does it fall apart because he built it around himself personally? I, I hate to sound like, uh, you know, a bad oracle, but it's, it, we're in very uncharted waters here and it's unclear exactly how this is going to affect that. But Mr. McMahon as a character, was one of the most <laughs> genius um personal decisions he could have made. Because by presenting himself for decades now to the public as that character who is a real mean SOB and is just an, a, a, you know, in the context of that, the fiction of wrestling, just an objectively bad person most of the time, you you kind of inoculate yourself against accusations of vice. You go, well, the public tends to shrug its shoulders and go, well, that's just Vince. That's the Vince I'm used to. That's another parallel with Trump and any number of other people. So, yeah, the Vince McMahon character known as Mr. McMahon and Vince himself are both very integral to the product. And without them, we're again, it's uncharted territory.
2: Yeah, this is something that I mean, this is I mean this is what like, goes down deep to, I guess, like Psychology, but I, I have wondered how, like, the logic of kayfabe interacts with accountability writ large, because we're always sort of—I I guess we can ask wh- whether kayfabe is alive and well in other sports that we just sort of, we just. The ones that we think of as quote unquote real, right? Um, you could think of David Stern, the, the, the NBA commissioner as having, having been at least in part a sort of invention of kayfabe. You could go on, on and on, but I do wonder whether a huge scandal, by the way, there have been things that should have been scandals in wrestling all along that sort of the untimely deaths of so many of its stars from steroids, all these things. Uh, but I do wonder if a huge scandal on this level does damage to the practice of kayfabe generally. If something gets too real, or is there an, a threshold beyond which something gets too real for for kayfabe to be a viable strategy going forward?
3: Just to define for the listener, kayfabe is this... Term of obscure linguistic origin that used to refer to the public fiction that wrestling was a legitimate sport, uh, a legitimate athletic competition, when in reality the outcomes were predetermined. But as you say, it's really evolved because wrestling does not present itself as okay. This is a a real sport. Now we, we they present the wrestlers as performers and it as an art form, um, but at the same time like you say, kayfabe has permeated all aspects of reality and wrestling is no exception where you may not be presenting the matches themselves as real, but you will present in like documentaries that, you know, streaming documentaries that WWE releases, they'll present backstage things that are entirely fabricated or at least grossly exaggerated and twisted as the reality of what's going on backstage. And that's that's what people want more than necessarily wanting, you know, to believe that what they're seeing in front of them is a legitimate sport. They want to feel like they're an insider on something that they love. And so kayfabe, I think, is still alive and well. I don't think you can kill kayfabe all that easily. You you have to contend with the fact that kayfabe has evolved To a point where now you can't trust that there is a truth under the big lie. Beneath the lie is a big mix of truths, half-truths, outright lies, half, you know, half-fictions, and it's really hard to parse through them. That's what kayfabe means now, is this tension between fantasy and reality that you can't quite figure out for yourself. And either you let it wash over you and just consume the product, and then it doesn't matter whether it's real or fake, or you really try to parse the product, and you can try to kind of drive yourself nuts that way. So I think kayfabe is alive and well, and I don't think this is going to kill that. Whether it kills Vince's kayfabe and means people start to see him outside the context of, oh, well, that's just Vince, that's Mr. McMahon, that's how he is, that's to be determined.
1: Abe Reisman is the author of an upcoming biography of Vince McMahon. You can pre-order it now. It's called Ringmaster, and we'll link to her piece in New York Magazine about the 1992 rape allegation uh, in our show notes. Abe, thank you so much.
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Up next, the rise of pickleball. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Vincent and I are gonna talk about the latest with Kevin Durant and the reports emerging on Monday that the Boston Celtics are potentially interested. Good idea, bad idea, we'll discuss. If you wanna hear that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows, you get ad-free shows, you get the uh, beneficial feeling in your soul of knowing you've supported us, who you listen to each week. If you want to do that, you can join up at slate.com slash hangup plus that's slate.com slash hangup plus. In her recent New Yorker feature story on pickleball, Sarah Larson notes the following facts. It's played with paddles and a wiffle-like ball. During the pandemic, more than a million Americans began playing it, bringing the total to around five million. Michael Phelps, Leonardo DiCaprio, and the Clooney's all play. There is such a thing as a pickleball vacation. And if you attend a tournament in Boca Raton, you might just hear a man yell out, apropos of nothing, pickleball. And that's just from the first three paragraphs. Joining us now is Sarah Larson. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker. We will link to her feature story on our show page. Sarah, thanks so much for being here.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: So your story covers a lot of ground. I would uh, hope that we get to the battle over the future of the pro game, which is maybe being ruined by a billionaire. Um, But it's also a primer on a pastime that, as you write, can blur the lines between sport and hobby, amateur and pro, celebrity and mortal. Is that what you think is the secret to pickleball success, that it can kind of be all things to all people?
4: Yes, in a way, I think maybe. But I think the secret to pickleball success is that it makes people happy and that people desperately need to feel happy right now. That's that's sort of what I came away with. I think it's just the right amount of exercise and challenge and socializing you know how some socializing is like too much socializing. You've got to talk too much. It gets awkward, et cetera. But this is like in, the games are often short. People are happy to be with one another. It's a friendly culture. You don't have to talk too much. You know what I mean? But you can play it for hours without becoming too exhausted. I mean, it obviously depends on the skill of everybody and how hard you're playing and so on. I mean, it can be incredibly challenging and athletic and often is. But um, I think just it's kind of simple, well-designed combination of features brings people joy and they just want as much of it as they possibly can get. (laughs) It becomes addictive.
2: One of the things that I loved about the piece was that you sort of go through in, in Washington State, I believe, the sort of. Invention of pickleball you tell it's like origin stories and it made me it made me think of like, you know How major religions sound weirder if they're old sound less weird if they're older just because like it's been around and we accept it (laughs) But like the new ones are the ones that were like wait, what how did it start this? That's what I got from this. It's like can you just talk a little bit about like how? Because it seems like that this is part of its like conscious growth is that like it was made on purpose to have this like low barrier to entry the this multi-generational appeal
1: Yeah. And there's also two kind of different types of sports, and maybe it's the same for religion too. There's like the ones that are invented explicitly by one person and the ones that kind of evolve organically out of something else. And this is the former.
4: Yeah. I mean, it was invented by three people, three dads who are vacationing on Bainbridge Island near Seattle in 1965. They were friends and the families all kind of summered in the same area. Uh, And one of the houses, the house of Joel Pritchard's family had this old badminton court and just some equipment lying around that didn't necessarily all add up to any game of any one existing thing. So the dads, in an effort to have something fun to do with their kids, just made up this game where there was a low net and uh, you couldn't stand in front of the net and smash it over. Um, They basically came up with rules that minimized running you know, disparities between um, what short people like kids and tall people like grownups could do. And it's often played doubles. So it ended up being that with just, you know, a little bit of skill and watching where you're putting the ball and that kind of thing, you could have a competitive game without having to be running all over the entire court. Like, Bjorn Borg in my day. no. <laughs> 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 or um, and, and, and then everybody, the, I mean, the first people who got addicted to pickleball were those families and their friends. They started playing it all the time that summer. And there are these great videos you can find online of the older founders of the game who have all since died. But um, talking about how you know if you aimed for a couple of trees, you could make force your opponent into a backhand, that kind of stuff. Do you have you ever been like on vacation? You kind of make up a goofy game. This was one they just took really seriously and did a really good job with. So
1: Yeah, and the rules seem particularly well designed. I've talked before uh on this podcast about how softball is a sport where I think it just doesn't quite work because the bases are too close together and the mound is too close (laughs) to home plate. And like there are some um, sports that just seem like you need to continue. And like, in even in baseball, like a game that's been around forever, there's just like constant talk of like, do we need to make the bases bigger? And do we need to change the height of the mound? And do it? And so it's amazing that these dads seem to have, Figured out um, rules that not only have made the game kind of popular and and spread and are competitive for like kids and adults and grandparents, but also like from a competitive aspect, it seems like it's a really well designed, well conceived game.
4: Yeah, definitely. I you know I think a lot of people have added to it and helped refine it over the years, and I think in the early weeks of their coming up with it, they, you know, they refined it bit by bit. And there's an underhand serve. And that also makes it, you know, tennis, one of the reasons tennis is hard for some of us is that (laughs) the serving, it's like pitching in baseball, you know, it's, it's very intense. And that kind of makes or breaks most high level games. But this and there's a two bounce rule where it has to bounce on both sides before you really um, start volleying and that kind of stuff. So it starts off in a gentle way, and then who knows what happens.
2: <laughs> I mean, speaking of tennis, one of the like really funny parts. I mean, this piece is really funny. Uh, I laughed out loud so many times. One of the really funny things about it is like how the, the pickleball enthusiasts talk about, like you know that. Speaking like that, meaning things that are like overly competitive and overly professionalized. Like that's very tennis of you. Like that's like, you know, that this is like these are rival, not just sports, but cultures in a, in a sense. And I, I know from like being online and like following people that are into tennis that like it is very much the com, the competition is coming from both sides. Like people are upset about like, you know, court space and things like this it's a very right now there's a kind of zero sum relationship between those things is that something that you see smoothing out as pickleball professionalized or is this like endemic to its culture it's anti-tennisness
4: i don't know i mean one of the funny things about the anti-tennis part of it is that most of the people who are grateful for pickleball and why it's different from tennis are former tennis players or are people who played tennis their whole lives. You know, and I talked to a lot of people at tournaments who, you know, were pro tennis players or who were lifelong competitive tennis players, but they just found that the culture of pickleball and also the physical ease of it compared with tennis in some ways, um just makes it friendlier it's friendlier physically and socially, kind of, but it isn't as if all of the pickleball players are people who started out demonizing tennis with and and don't know tennis. You know what I mean? They're the same people
2: people who have been like waiting their whole lives just uh, for a place to channel their hatred toward tennis. They're like finally <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, but then the the real estate question is a whole other thing I mean. There are many pickleball players who very passionately want more courts. And I mean, one of the things that I really came to love as I learned about pickleball was that I think for some people, it's, it's a physical athletic thing to do that they might not otherwise be doing. There are many other players who are really athletic and would be doing some sport anyway. But there are a lot of people who play recreationally. And there are a lot of like restaurant chains that are starting to spread that are like booze and pickleball and hanging out and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I like that there's a low barrier to entry for a lot of people and that people are doing something physical and social in real life. That seems very good. But I think that the answer to the real estate question is that there just needs to be more courts for everybody. I don't, I don't love the idea of, um, pickleball taking over and there not being any tennis. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but I, there's no reason that tennis players should have to feel stressed out because people love pickleball, you know.
1: Tennis and pickleball just both need to team up on golf and just start <laughs> raising some uh, <laughs> golf courses for an alliance. I mean, one of the um, big themes and sections of your piece, Sarah, if we kind of bracket the recreational side of the game here for a minute, is that the more competitive side of pickleball is becoming more like tennis or more like a whole bunch of other sports, that there is this kind of injection of prize money, sponsorship. And then you have this billionaire who's Tom Dundon, the owner of the Carolina Hurricanes, who's come in and just like thrown the entire sport into a frenzy. He's sort of like the the golf live tour, except without the Saudi Arabia money.
4: (laughs) I don't know if I would... (laughs)
1: Oh, I would go that far. I would potentially go <laughs> further, but but like people are having to choose. Am I going with the APP or the PPA? And um, it's it's a it's a very it it seems like the the kind of bigger picture here is that a lot of people are realizing that this is a popular sport, and um, so things are just kind of being shaken up for that reason.
4: Before Tom Dundon came and bought the PPA and a couple of the other big pickleball entities. <laughs> um, there were tournaments and there were many people playing in tournaments. Yeah, there were the two, these two tours, the PPA and the APP. And then there's a third thing, uh, the MLP, which is a league, major league pickleball, which is also uh, was started by a, a wealthy guy, uh, Steve Kuhn, who's kind of a great character, but, these things all existed and they were all kind of peacefully coexisting. And it's a pretty small pro community and everybody is friends with everybody. But the other thing is um, for the two main tours, those are pro-am tours and historically amateurs kind of funded a lot of, you know, through registration fees and so on. Um, So it isn't a bad thing that more sponsors are coming in and investing money, especially if it's going to take some of the heat perhaps off of the amateur community who's been funding it largely through enthusiasm and so on. You know, there hasn't been enough money to go around to support a big pro scene and all of the things that one would want to have happen with, with the pro scene. But um, but Dundon did, you know, by he had some players sign exclusivity contracts and that was sort of what started... Um, some anxiety. But I think overall, the pros at least are happy um, that all of this is happening, that people are investing in pickleball. And Dundon also has some good ideas about how to organize things and how to run things. And, and formerly, there were these organizations that all operated independently of one another, and nobody's really in charge. I mean, USA Pickleball is in charge of rules and some things. Um, that's another organization, obviously. But um, I think part of it was an organizing slash sponsorship and funding principle. We'll see what happens, (laughs) is my point. (laughs) I don't think he's the equivalent of a Saudi Arabian. um...
1: All right. Fair. Fair enough. Fair enough.
2: It does seem like, you know, there are risks of as this sort of revenue center grows as it seems like it is primed to do because of all of the parts of the game that you mentioned, right. Um, more people come into it then they want to see it. And then, you know, it seems like a natural stage in the growth of a thing that the, the that cultural element does stand to be somewhat compromised where it's like, has been this small scene where you could go and see one of the the Johnson siblings who are, are you know are are characters in this you'd see them around you'd, hey Georgia what's going on and now all of a sudden that person is like on their way to their next like appearance and you know it does seem that that is one of the tensions of the piece that like at a certain point a game can't just it's like if you turned hacky sack professional it wouldn't be the game we all know and love right like things would things would <laughs> have to change
4: it could get pretty intense.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> in the hacky sack scene. Yeah. I mean they're right now the pros are all and and the other big family is the Johns family in the PPA, Ben Johns and his brother who's his double par- doubles partner and their sister who's the main announcer for the tour. And there are tons of teams that are, you know, cousins and mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters and um That's another thing that I got a kick out of pickleball wise. There's a lot of family stuff. The mother daughter team, Anna Lee and Lee Waters, who are Anna Lee is 15 and she's she's one of the best players in the game. And she was telling me that um, I asked if it was like being famous and she said it's pickleball famous. You know, sometimes they're recognized at the supermarket or something. Most people have no idea who they are, but people who know about pickleball know who they are, you know.
1: So I would love to wrap up by noting the other um, kind of consequence of being invented by dads, which is the kind of groan-inducing nature of a lot of the, the puns. Or I don't know if it's even puns. It's just like pickle-related <laughs> terminology around the sport. Um, there are references in the piece to the pickle community. There's pickle this, and there's pickle that. Two questions. Is there like kind of an awareness within the community of how ridiculous the name pickleball and like calling things pickle this pickle that are or is it sort of like you don't recognize the brine that you're swimming in and then second <laughs> what were the your favorite kind of pickleball things that you just heard uh I- exclaimed around the pickle the pickle community
4: Now I'm, of course, imagining a David Foster Wallace graduation (laughs) speech called This is Brine. In the pickle community, you know, I think it's like, you know how plenty of bands you like have dumb names or weird names, but you just don't think about it anymore because you're used to it. Um, I think it's a little bit like that. I talked to a player in, um, in New York who said that he used to just Say he was going to play a racket sport, or he'd even tell his friends he was going to play tennis because he just didn't want to get into what it was and saying it. And now, and he's like, Now I just say pickleball. Like it's just achieved this kind of mainstream status. I think it's people fall in love with it and they just embrace its goofy name. There's a new franchise opening called Electric Pickle um, <laughs> that's in the works. There's a, another one called Chicken and Pickle, which is already big and popular. That's more in the South, Southwest, Midwest. Um, yeah, just stay tuned because there's going to be pickle stuff all over the place. So, <laughs>
1: Sarah Larson is a staff writer for The New Yorker. On the web, her feature is headlined, Can Pickleball Save America? So with those stakes, how can you not read it? Sarah, thanks so
4: much. Thank you so much. This was fun.
1: And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was OK.
2: I'm going to talk, Josh, about a bedeviling underhand serve, a spin serve in uh, the pickleball community known as the Navratil Chainsaw. It's proved controversial. It's, it's named after Wisconsin's own Zane Navratil, a character, I should say, in Sarah Larson's great pickleball piece. He's ranked number three. In singles by the Pro Pickleball Association, and number two, by the sort of underdog association of pickleball professionals. Navratil is not known for his power on his serve. I guess no pickleball serves are known for their power, but let's let's concede that for now. And he's able to take control of his points immediately by this chainsaw serve, and it creates a lot of topspin. According to Wikipedia, apparently it, it forces weak returns out of his opponents, and it allows him to close... Uh, in on the net and take control of the point from there on. But of course, he faults on his serve more than the average professional pickleball player. Of course. Of course.
1: There's always, there's, there's always
2: compromise. So, Josh, as a bedeviling, sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes underhand individual yourself, (laughs) what is your Navratil chainsaw?
1: I thought you'd never ask. Um, so there has been some talk this week. Um, including on this very podcast about Sydney McLaughlin's 400 meter hurdles run. And not only of being a world record, Vincent, but being kind of a record among records. Um, <laughs> as we talked about earlier, um, she ran a 50.68. She beat her own previous world record by an astonishing 0.73 seconds. She's also nine tenths of a second faster than the second fastest woman in history, which is her American um, compatriot, Dalila Muhammad. All extremely impressive, um, but it, it will always be hard to top Bob Beeman. You heard Tim Layden kind of quickly name check Beeman earlier, um, but at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, Beeman, American long jumper, broke the existing world record by almost two feet. It still sounds um, kind of extraterrestrial to, Even talk about it now, all these years later. So, the existing world record, 27 feet, four and a half inches. Um, Beeman's leap, 29 feet, two and a quarter inches. And that would stand for 23 years. And then, as uh, another name that Tim mentioned, Mike Powell beat Beeman's record by two inches at the 1991 World Championships in Tokyo. Another kind of crazy thing to think about I mean, we're around the same age, Vincent. the, The Bob Beeman record kind of stood during our childhoods is like the longest standing record in sports. But now Powell's record has stood for way longer than Beeman's did. It's been nearly 31 full years at this point, And it's going to keep mm-hmm. on standing for a, a whole lot longer. There's no indication that at any point, at any time soon, it's going to be broken, that this year's World Championships have just concluded. Um, China's Wang Jinan won gold and jumped a mere 27 feet, nine inches. Would have been the record in 1968, but would have been almost as badly destroyed by Bob Beeman as the 27 foot, four and a half inch record. So it's obviously kind of the first question you ask is like, why aren't long jumpers jumping any longer at this point? Um, Daniel Lamedi wrote a piece for Slate back in 2012 about that question, the leading theory then, probably the same now, is that it's no longer a glamor sport whenever you don't have money. And when there's a skill like running fast and jumping that is highly (laughs) remunerative in other sports, then you're probably gonna pull away the athletes who could potentially um, break this record. But today, I wanna kind of put that aside and get into some alternate history, which is the idea that Bob Beeman's world record actually has already been broken. And that it was done so in 1982 hmm. by the four-time long jump gold medalist at the Olympics, Carl Lewis. Job Poznanski wrote a blog post about this back in 2011. It was headlined "The 30 Foot Jump." The scene is the National Sports Festival in Indianapolis in July of 1982. As Poznanski noted, Lewis was not yet famous except among the most intense track fans, and that day. This is the most incredible fact of all, even more incredible than the 30, alleged 30-foot 30 jump, is that he was actually running a 4x100 relay in the middle of the long jump competition. So he just, like, <laughs> went away, ran the, ran his leg, and then just kind of went back and continued competing in the long jump. On his fourth attempt that day, Paznansky wrote, Lewis felt that clean liftoff as he hit the board. He knew immediately. He was flying. When he hit the sand, he knew. He had broken the world record. He had jumped 30 feet. He looked down and saw the mark, and his mind detonated. He was 21 years old, and he had just made the longest jump in the history of the world. Good paragraph. Then Carl Lewis looked back, saw that the official had signaled a foul. That is, that his foot had extended over the board, red flag up. The whole jump is moot. It never had basically never happened. Lewis insisted in the moment that the official was wrong, but there was nothing he could do. There was no whatever instant replay. I guess there's still not instant replay on this today, but the jump was never even measured. They kind of in a moment of of zen rock garden style (laughs) (laughs) maintenance, the mark in the sand was just swept away instantly. um, So we don't know. We don't know uh, what the mark was. You can see the jump on YouTube. I'll, I'll put some links in our show notes if you wanna check it out. And I also found a clip Of Lewis talking about it with a local news reporter in Indianapolis in
2: 1982. And I was a little disappointed because one of them was very, very close. So you know that 30 feet is a possibility now?
0: I mean, everybody's talking the
1: 29-2 plus.
0: Well, 30 feet, I had one jump over 30 feet. That's
1: what excited me so much, you know, beyond everything else, because I didn't think I could do it. Lewis said then, you know, we just heard, I didn't think I could do it. Well, he never did get close to 30 feet um, in a non-foul attempt, though he did get over 29 a handful of times that um, competition in 1991, where Mike Powell set the record, maybe the one of the greatest kind of track and field duels in history. That's another thing that you should check out in YouTube because not only did Powell set the record, but um, Lewis in, in that meet um, jumped over 29 feet um, to set his his own personal bests. So anyway, at the end of his post, Joe Pizzanici said. Then while we'll never know, that 30-foot jump might be the greatest thing Carl Lewis ever did. It might be the greatest thing any athlete ever did. Or maybe not. Because Ponanski did not include something that I found via that Slate blog post <laughs> I mentioned before by Daniel Lametti. In that story, he linked to a 1983 segment on ABC News Magazine show 2020 in which Dick Shap investigated Lewis's supposed 30-foot jump. They, like, went all forensic on it. Shap interviewed an Israeli-born physicist who analyzed the leap using 1983-era computer technology. Let's listen. If we know this distance and we know the distance from where we land to the end of of the, uh, the pit in the good jump, we can calculate what is the distance from the end of the pit back to the foul jump. If I give it an upper limit, it was 28.11, which is the second best jump of all time. And- so there you have it, I guess. Uh, 28.11 is the upper limit. Though I'd definitely be interested, Vincent, in someone reanalyzing the footage using 2022 era computer technology. Although it won't make the old footage any uh, uh, more high res. But um, I still want to believe. I still want to believe.
2: I so badly want to believe that I propose it if we by AI, by remodeling, by whatever means available to us. If we establish that this happened, we should change the world record. We should go back. We should also, I feel like a retroactive justice is, is, is appropriate here.
1: All right. Well, um, the grant proposal will be going out soon. So uh, keep your eye on the space. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Vincent Cunningham, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.